Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. The cool thing is that the double tap is just a callback that you get in your code. So you can do anything that you want. You can run any kind of logic that you want and you could check for modifier keys. You could check for you know all kinds of conditions that you would like and then make the app behave appropriately. Normally when Apple introduces new hardware features, they're usually very limited in the beginning because they want to gain you know, more control over how it's used and the messaging around it and things like that. When I first looked at the API, it, it looked like that was the case because the API actually has options for things like cycle between tools or toggle between the eraser and the current tool and show a color palette. But those are all just guidelines, really. Like you can check for that in your code to kind of respect the user settings, which you probably should, but then you can do whatever you want. So uh, you could use those things as a guide, but then you could always override it if you feel like that's appropriate. Welcome back to iPad Pros. The interview you're about to hear is a fun one with a software developer that only just recently got back into working on iPad projects. John Sundell is my guest today, and we discuss the future of computer programming and what it could look like on the iPad, what the potential is of the new Apple Pencil, why he's back in iPads after not really using one since the iPad 3, what developers should do to really take advantage of external display support, and much more. Before we get to the interview... I just want to thank everyone that has supported the podcast on patreon.com slash iPad pros. It really means a lot to me and I'm really thankful for the support there. Thanks too to the new reviews up on Apple podcasts. I really appreciate your time and thoughtfulness in writing those. If you haven't written one yet, I'd really appreciate your time opening up the Apple podcast app and leaving a review. It really helps to feed Apple's algorithms to show this podcast higher in search and helps others discover the show. Without further ado, here's my interview with John. Enjoy. We're here today with John Sundell. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So you caught my attention from a retweet from Stephen uh, Tronsmith. Oh, yeah. With him uh, showing off your Imagine Engine, which lets you, on the iPad now with the Apple Pencil, do some pretty cool intuitive game design. Uh, it looked like almost like a a Mario kind of template where you're changing the platform level with the Apple Pencil and copying things around. Yeah. Can you walk me through how this works and what's done on the Mac versus the iPad? Sure. I built this plugin for my game engine that's called Imagine Engine, which I wrote for Apple's platform. So it supports Apple TV, Mac, iPhone, and iPad. And I wrote this plugin to enable people to use the Apple Pencil on the iPad to actually live edit a game while it's running. When you're designing games, you want to have a really quick feedback loop. So much comes down to the little details, you know, like how far can you jump or how quickly can you run? And to be able to tweak some of those parameters on the device itself and using the Apple Pencil to do like visual level editing, I think could be quite cool. So I built this little prototype that I showed off like in a little video just to get people's feedback. And it seemed like a lot of people were excited about it. I think it's a cool idea and something I'm definitely going to continue kind of looking at to see how you can use the Apple Pencil as like a tool to live edit something that's actually running on the device. Very cool. And what we saw was kind of a single screen of a level of a platformer. To get to that point, are you developing art assets 
on the Mac end of things? Are those art assets developed on the iPad itself? For now, the way it works is that you build your game in Xcode on the Mac. So you write your code using Swift or Objective-C. The engine itself is written in Swift, so probably most people will use it in Swift, which is Apple's newest programming language. Then you deploy it to the iPad. And when you deploy it, you include this little plugin. So the plugin will be in your code and will actually be as part of the app that you deploy on the iPad. And then as soon as you touch the Apple Pencil onto the screen, that's when the plugin kind of wakes up and activates itself and says, okay, let me go into edit mode now. Let's enable the pencil to actually move the objects, to resize things, to draw new objects and things like that. So all the assets for now are baked into the app. So it's all in the app when you deploy it. But it would be really cool to explore being able to import new assets as well. For example, being able to drag and drop new images in and those would then just be added to the game and things like that. I think this is just like the tip of the iceberg and you can definitely like go a lot further in being more dynamic and enabling people to edit more aspects of the game. Yeah, so when you make those edits, it's pushed back to the Mac when you're... You don't have to be tethered during this, or or do you? It's when you get back to the Mac, you can then push it back, or how's that part of it work? The game engine kind of keeps the state of the game internally. So it knows like where all the objects are, what their size are, and things like that. So when you're done with your edits, what you can do is that you can export that state, like export what the scene currently looks like in the JSON format. So that'd basically be a um, serialized file containing all the information. So all the sizes and positions and all that kind of stuff. And then you can use that file and then import it in your Mac and then continue working on the game from there. You don't have to be tethered at all. The code itself is not actually being changed because the code is already compiled into a binary. So it's all just done kind of in memory and then you can export that and then use that file to continue working on your game. But again, it would be really cool to have a tool where you can actually influence some aspects of the code. For example, if you are connected to your Mac, then the iPad could talk back to the Mac and say, this variable was just changed, and then the Mac could go ahead and update that code. So yeah, that's again something that could be added in the future. It's really, like, the sky's really the limit here, I feel. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know much about... So PlayStation has this project in the works for many years now, the Dreams. Oh, yeah. Could you see a future where, uh, maybe not this project in particular, but a future where on iPad, you're actually kind of doing game development right there. It's a whole platform where people can share levels and things like that. Absolutely. I think it's all about creating the building blocks. And then what you do with those building blocks on the iPad could really, you know, again, the sky could be the limit there, depending on how dynamic those components are. So like I mentioned, for now, the plugin that I built is uh, just enabling you to manipulate your own game. And it enables you to do things like add new objects and resize the ones you already have, move them around and things like that. In the future, you could have a system where you have different building blocks that are essentially just like pieces of code that you could put together to form a completely new game on the iPad. And this is essentially how Dreams work, the game you're referring to on the PS4, where you have all these kind of assets that you can use and you can add behaviors to them and they have their own little kind of programming language, but it's very visual. So you could do something like this as well, where you can just like take all these things and put them together and essentially create like any kind of game that you would like. I'm pretty far from that right now since it's just like, you know, right, something yeah. <laughs> I I was working on as a prototype, but it's something I'm 
always kind of dreaming about. How could I create an environment that enables me to create new things on, on the iPad or on the iPhone, like on the go, without always having to go back to the Mac and update the code? Yeah, the, the future is exciting. It is, yeah. 20 years from now, what is the world going to be like with this kind of just creation stuff? Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, it's all about just like creating the right building blocks and making them dynamic enough. And that's a big challenge, of course. But if we can get there, then uh, being able to put them together in many different shapes and forms will be possible. And yeah, I think it would be really cool. So what's your background with development, all this stuff? I, I know you worked at Spotify for four years, but kind of how did you yeah. get to this point? So I've been an iOS developer for many years now. Uh, I kind of lost count. I started when there was iOS uh, 3, iOS 4 in that era. So I've uh, been doing, I guess, for about seven or eight years, something like that now. Before that, I was a web developer. I was uh, doing web development. I was doing backend development and things like that. I learned how to code when I was very young. And my goal was actually always to create games. <laughs> Hence the focus on games and game engines and things like that. But I've never actually been like a professional game developer. I've released a handful of games with my friends. That was kind of a long time ago since I did that. I create games as a hobby and as a way to kind of hang out with my friends. That's why I'm so focused on making these kind of tools to make it easy and fun to do that. But apart from that, I'm mostly working as an iOS freelancer right now. And I also run my own site called Swift by Sundell, where I post a new article about Swift development every week. It's awesome. And with Swift, does it feel like to you that like it can be a good starting place for people that have never coded before? that want to get into this? Or is that not the right language to begin with? I'm kind of conflicted about this. <laughs> because on, on one hand, Swift is a great language when it comes to learning how to code. It has a very lightweight syntax. So you don't need to know so much of the like, programmy stuff when it comes to like, what are types, what's inheritance, what are functions and things like that, you can start out pretty simple and you can type some code and you can even use something like Swift Playgrounds on the iPad, which makes you know learning Swift pretty straightforward and more fun. But on the other hand, and here comes the conflict, mm -hmm. Swift is an extremely powerful language and it's extremely complex, which means that chances are that even if you start out simple and you use only the simple features, you will very soon start to encounter some of these things that make Swift so powerful. And we're talking here about like the type system that Swift uses and the way it supports many advanced language features. For those aspects, a simpler language that maybe has not as nice syntax, but is more simple in kind of the way it works might be a better fit for a beginner. We'll have to wait and see. Maybe the, the advancements in Swift tooling will make it even easier for beginners. I think it can be a good language for beginners for the kind of syntax reasons and stuff like that, but it's, it's tricky. It's a very tricky question to answer. It can get pretty advanced, even in Swift Playgrounds. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but someone actually built an NES emulator that runs within Swift Playgrounds and you can load right into it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a fully featured language. And even in Swift Playgrounds, you have the full power of Swift at your disposal and the full power of the iOS SDK. So you can pretty much do anything. And with great power comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> the right, the yeah. old Uncle Ben quote. Having all this power is amazing, but as a beginner, it can be incredibly intimidating once you start kind of seeing the full extent of the language and not only kind of the beginner snippets that you will be shown in the beginning. Yeah. Now, if Xcode does come to iPad one of these years, do you think Apple will make it Swift only as a way to kind of like say this is where the future is or is Objective-C stuff still needed to develop some of the best iOS apps these days? 
it kind of depends a little bit on what Apple will do with their own SDK and their own kind of platform tools. Because right now, the entire iOS SDK, like all of UI kits and all of the tools that we use as developers to build iOS apps, that's all in Objective-C still. So it only has like a little layer on top of it to make it look like Swift. <laughs> so when you call into it from Swift, you you can use Swift style code for the most part and kind of imagine like it's actually Swift. If Apple was to build something like Xcode for iPad and let's say it would only support Swift, I think they would need to do something about that to maybe introduce yet another layer in between or to actually rewrite UIKit, which would be a huge endeavor uh, in order for it to actually be supported throughout the stack. because. One thing that's very common to do as a developer is, for example, to look at some of the header files, like some of the actual APIs that we use, and those are all in Objective-C. It's probably likely that the iPad version of Xcode, if it ever comes, uh, will be kind of Swift only, or at least Swift focused, but entirely dropping support for Objective-C would require some more kind of under the hood changes, I think. Gotcha. Now, long tail future, is writing code with text a thing that, well, do you think is kind of the the future in the long course? Or will we ever get to the point where it's a more visual kind of shortcuts, more um, graphical interface to implement things? I love that question because it's something that I think about almost every single day. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I think that for the time being, code will probably remain text only for quite a while, both for the aspect of kind of legacy that all the code that we have written up to this point in in the history of humanity has been kind of in text form, except some exceptions, but also that text is an extremely efficient way to share code with others. So let's imagine a more kind of visual format. Let's take shortcuts as an example. Yeah, Sharing a shortcut is sharing an actual kind of JSON file or a serialized file of that shortcut. So It needs to be represented in a more kind of verbose manner that is kind of harder to read as a human and harder to do things like diff it or detect conflicts and things like that. And just pure text code, even, you know, for non-programmers, it probably looks like mumbo jumbo, (laughs) but for programmers, it's very easy to read and it's easy to, to handle in the text form. That being said, I think that if we were to design programming today, like let's say that programming was invented today with all these touchscreens, I don't think we would make it a text-based format. I think there would be something else, maybe a more touch-friendly UI, maybe less verbose things that are easier to deal with on touchscreens. So I think there's definitely going to be more of those kind of tools like shortcuts and others, where you can take some of the complexity out of programming and make it more kind of drag and drop and user-friendly and things like that. And one interesting aspect of programming that I've seen in languages, for example, like uh, Luna, which is a data processing language, is kind of combining these two approaches where you have a graphical interface for kind of constructing the logic, but then under the hood, you actually have code running. So each kind of a node in the UI is actually represented by a code function under the hood. And I think something like this could be really interesting where you have different layers of abstraction, like you could design the code using a user interface, but then under the hood, it would actually still be text, it will still be code running. And pulling that off is a huge challenge, but it's a super interesting thing to think about, I think. 
Yeah, you could almost build out these little puzzle pieces that are graphical, but when you kind of click into them, it shows you all the code, and you could perhaps download these little puzzle pieces if you're trying to work on a certain type of project, like an audio player project that you have all your audio puzzle pieces that you kind of build together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's super cool. And you see this already coming back to kind of game development in uh, tools like Unity and uh, Unreal Engine, where game designers, they can actually construct logic, like they can essentially program the game, but without writing any code. They can just drag and drop and connect different nodes to each other and uh, do it all visually. But under the hood, it's all powered by code. So you have these more like building blocks Again, coming back to that kind of plug-in building block analogy where the role of the programmer becomes more to build those building blocks. And then the role of the designer is how do I actually use those building blocks to construct the final product? And I think having something like that, not only for game development or data processing, but in a more kind of general purpose language could be super cool and enable people who are not programmers to construct their own things, just kind of like ShareCuts does, but in a more limited fashion. Yeah. Now, you've been sharing some other projects on Twitter. Can you walk me through what other kind of iPad projects you've been working on? Right now, I'm working on a new prototype that is a Markdown editor. So Markdown is a markup language that is very widely used to kind of write content for the web. So instead of having to write HTML, kind of raw HTML, you can write this more like lightweight syntax using Markdown and then convert it to HTML later. So I use that to write articles for my own site. I thought it would be really cool to have a Markdown editor on the iPad that took advantage of kind of the new capabilities of the iPad Pro. First off, I added support for the Apple Pencil. So you can actually use the Apple Pencil to drag to select text. And this is actually really cool. Uh, When I first kind of came up with the idea, I thought I wasn't sure whether or not it was going to work or if it was going to be nice. But I really like it now that I have it implemented. Like you can very easily like select paragraphs by just dragging with a pencil. And the cool thing is that enables you to use your fingers for everything else. So you can use your finger to scroll and then use the pencil to kind of highlight text. Yeah, and the difference is instead of tapping and holding, then dragging with the pencil, you're just immediately dragging. There's no delay. Exactly. There's zero delay. And you're very precise. You're able to be really precise with a pencil. I really love this because it kind of lets you add an additional layer of interaction to an iPad app. Before, we only had, you know, touch input. That was it. Uh, If you, you know, discount the kind of sensors like gyroscope and these kind of things. But just you know, manipulating the screen that was all based on touches. And we were adding things like long presses and swipes and gestures to kind of add more functionality. But if you add the pencil, you add another layer on top of it. So you can kind of treat it a little bit like a mouse or like a pointing device. A lot of apps use this for drawing, for example, which is really cool. But you could also use it for things like selecting text. And I'm also thinking about like, how about a strategy game where you could select your units using the pencil, right? So you can kind of circle around your units and then make them move. And there's so many ways, I think, to use the pencil when you can differentiate between normal touch input and pencil input. Yeah. In the the double tap, how do you think that'll be used with text? So for the double tap uh, on the Apple Pencil, I added support for copy and paste. You can select some text with a pencil, then double tap on it, and then put the cursor somewhere else and double tap again, and it would actually paste that text. This is super nice, I think, because this is something I do all the time when I'm editing one of my articles. So the way I usually work is that I write down a lot of different things, a lot of different ideas, and I just kind of freeform write uh, for a while, and then I start editing. 
everything. And then I remove stuff, I move stuff around, I copy, I paste. And being able to do that like super quickly by just like moving the pencil, double tapping, that is really convenient. So I'm, I'm really happy about that feature. So the logic is smart enough to know that I just cut something, so now I'm going to paste it? Yeah. Or is it, if anything is near your clipboard, how does that work? That's going to be a little bit of a challenge, I think, to get that right and to make that into kind of a general purpose tool if I ever want to do that. But for now, it's kind of simple in the way that it only works within the context of the app. Like it still puts the content in the actual pasteboard, Mm -hmm. but it checks if a copy has been done within the app. So it doesn't accidentally like paste stuff that comes from somewhere else. Gotcha. So the first time you double tap, it copies. The second time it pastes and then it goes back to copying. I think that logic will need to be reworked and or rethought a little bit. Maybe, you know, having something where you hold down a modifier key to clear the clipboard or something. But I really like the interaction itself. And then, you know, I, I'm going to have to polish it a little bit to make it sure that it works in all cases. You could almost think of a timeout situation too, where after a minute, you just actually want to delete the text rather than move it. Almost. Yeah. One of my favorite features of the Markdown editor that I currently use, which is IA Writer, is that if you have a link in your clipboard and then you add a link to your text, it will automatically use that link from your clipboard in the text. So you just have to mark something that you want to turn into a link and press Command K, which is a keyboard shortcut for creating a link, mm-hmm. and it will just use that link that you already have in the clipboard. So features like this, they may it might seem like small or insignificant, but when you're actually writing and you're in that, you know, in the zone, those kind of small features make a ton of difference in your productivity. Now, I was just thinking about this. There's no way currently to use an external keyboard in combination with pencil. Say, hold down Option and your double tap would be something different from when you hold down Command when you're not holding anything. Yeah, you can do that. Absolutely. Oh, you, you can. So you could take advantage of what? Control, Option, and Command. Are those the three that you could do that with? Or is it theoretically any key you could modify with Apple Pencil and doing a double tap? Yeah, so the cool thing is that the double tap is just a callback that you get in your code. So you can do anything that you want. You can run any kind of logic that you want and you could check for modifier keys. You could check for, you know, all kinds of conditions that you would like and then make the app behave appropriately. That's pretty cool. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. It's it's very cool. Yeah. I was very surprised. Normally when Apple introduces new hardware features, they're usually very limited in the beginning because they want to gain you know, more control over how it's used and the messaging around it and things like that. When I first looked at the API, it it looked like that was the case because the API actually has options for things like cycle between tools or toggle between the eraser and the current tool and show a color palette. But those are all just guidelines, really. Like you can check for that in your code to kind of respect the user settings, which you probably should, but then you can do whatever you want. So uh, (laughs) you could use those things as a guide, but then you could always override it if you feel like that's appropriate. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's good to know. External display support is something that looks pretty neat in the way you implemented it in this prototype here. Because my mind goes to, okay, most of the time it's just mirroring it and then you can't touch that screen. So what's the use? But in this case, you had it where it's actually displaying kind of the rendering of the markdown. So if it's a header yeah. tag, it'll show the header and things like that. It's another one of those things that I kind of always wanted for myself. Again, the app I use, IA Writer, it's kind of supports this already where you have a split view. You can see your markdown on the left and the rendered markdown on the right but it kind of takes up a lot of your screen. And on iOS, you have to toggle between the two modes. I love immediate feedback, as you can tell from the game development tool we talked about earlier. (laughs) I love to be able to directly manipulate things and live edit stuff and see how it will change in real time. So 
Yeah, when I saw that uh, external displays would be supported over USB-C, I was really excited and I thought, you know, it would be really cool to build something like this where you can edit your markdown on the iPad and you get the full iPad screen for showing your text, your markdown text. And then on the external display, you can actually see what that markdown will look like on your website, like when it gets rendered. So it almost becomes like live editing your website, (laughs) which is pretty great. So you can adjust the text for your layout margins. Uh, Like in my case, I have code samples, so I can see how the code samples will be rendered. I can make sure that the lines are not too long. I can make sure everything is nice and easy to read. Again, it's really like, it's a small thing, but it really improves the feedback loop a lot. How do you hope other developers implement this? Are there certain apps that you'd like to see external display support add to? I think the key is what you mentioned earlier is that you can't touch the external display, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure that it's something that you're not supposed to interact with in any way. So I think it makes a lot of sense for apps that do some kind of rendering. So for example, let's say you have an HTML editor, you could render the web page that you're working on on the external display, which is how most web developers work anyway. Like uh, when they work on their Mac, they have like the Safari open showing the website and then they use a text editor to edit the source. You could do something similar on the iPad with external displays as well. Uh, or like a photo editing app, you could maybe edit the photo. You could see all your layers for in an app like Photoshop or Pixelmator, and you could see the actual rendered photo on the big screen. Or like a video app where you're drawing different segments of video and you're moving things around. You could actually see the fully rendered video in 4K or 5K even on your big display. The addition of USB-C in terms of external displays, I think, is a pretty big deal because iOS is actually supported external displays for a long, long time, all the way since iOS 3. Yeah, I remember back in the iOS 3, 4 days, I hooked my iPad up to a TV for, I think it was Real Racing, and it would show a different thing on the TV, yeah. Yeah, that was super cool, right? It was, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, but the funny thing is that there were a couple of apps using that, like Real Racing. I know that Panic, they made this uh, dashboard app or status board app where you can could see that on the TV. And uh, Jump Desktop, I believe, if you're hooked up to a Windows eight or 10 machine, it'll output an optimized view of that remote desktop on the TV through AirPlay. So they're doing some external, I think probably over the wire too, it does this. Right. So there's been a couple of examples of using this technology already, but it's always been limited in a way that AirPlay has a lot of latency. So you can't really do like, like the real racing, that was actually extremely impressive that they were able to pull that off because there was a lot of latency, and but it was still fun to play. And that was really cool. Uh, But there was a lot of latency with AirPlay. And the same thing goes for the lightning to HDMI adapter. There's not a lot of latency, but then people have to have this adapter. So I think right now with USB-C, you have not only do you have like way bigger bandwidth so you can output to bigger displays with more resolution, but also the fact that if you have a Mac and you use like, let's say your laptop, you connect that to external display like I do, you already have a USB-C dongle. (laughs) So you'll be able to connect your iPad much easier, which I think potentially can make building features like this more feasible for companies. Yeah, I really want to see Apple create a cinema display that it'll work with the whatever Mac Pro, but also it will fall back to USB-C for the iPad where you'd have Ethernet, USB ports, and headphone jacks, everything on the display, kind of like the old Thunderbolt displays did back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. And wouldn't it even be cooler if that display also was uh, touch supported? <laughs> so you could actually... Oh, that's my... Yeah, that would be amazing. That would be like having a huge iPad. I think something like this uh, will probably happen at some point, but yeah, we'll see when. <laughs> yeah, because currently I... 
run with two iPads. So I have a second monitor and it would be so nice to not have to own two different computers to get my job done. So I would love touchscreen support in like iOS 13 or 15. Yeah, that would be super cool. And I'm sure that there are prototypes at Apple's headquarters doing this, right? (laughs) I'm sure this is an idea that they're exploring. But now I feel like the infrastructure is kind of there and the iPad Pro, the new one, is so incredibly powerful. I can't help but think that some parts of these moves, like adding USB-C to the iPad and making it so ridiculously powerful, is kind of future-proofing, right? Yeah. So that when an external display eventually might come out, you could say, well, it's supported in all the iPads that were made in the like last three years or something. Mm-hmm. And that could be really huge. Yeah. The form factor will be interesting, too if it would be like a studio kind of form factor like Microsoft does where it kind of folds down in front of your hands on your desk in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many use cases that enables as well. Like let's say you're an architect or something and you're working on some plans or or if you're like a professional illustrator or animator, you know, these people already use this sort of tools, but they are huge and bulky and they cost a lot of money. Well, I'm sure the Apple one will cost a lot of money too. Right, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, still, it will probably be more accessible to the average consumer. You'd probably still want a physical keyboard, but in those larger sizes... You could have a display where the keyboard isn't getting in your way, and right now it's kind of a detractor with your screen real estate with the keyboard being virtual. Yeah. But if it's a huge screen, that's less of an issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could have a little keyboard just in the corner or something, and the rest of the screen would be all available to you. That would be super cool. So so something we haven't brought up yet is that your last iPad was the iPad third generation. Yep. <laughs> and now uh, your your next iPad that you own is the third generation, but the iPad Pro this time around. So what... I only buy the third generation products. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have an iPad mini three in there, do you? Uh... <laughs> no, actually I don't, but yeah. <laughs> I guess first question, the long hiatus from iPad. Uh, why'd you give up an iPad and why'd you come back? The way I used to use the iPad was very, very lightweight, like I think a lot of people do, where I was only like watching movies on it and maybe reading some of the web stuff and I was uh, playing some games, but very, very limited. And at some point, I just stopped bringing the iPad with me. I used to bring it with me all the time, but I was always bringing my Mac because I was, you know, doing work on my laptop. And at some point, especially with the iPad 3, which was a little bit heavy, it was a little bit bulky, and it was a little bit slow because it was the first one with the retina screen. At some point, I was like, well, let me just use my Mac. And as also the iPhone got bigger, the motivation to bring the iPad along kind of disappeared. Then, you know, things kept evolving, and uh, I was always very interested in the iPad, and I, of course, had access to iPads at work and things like that. So it wasn't that I never touched an iPad for this many years. But I didn't feel like that really urge to kind of buy one and own one because I've always been like a big, big fan of the Mac and I use my Mac for 99% of all the work that I do. I was a little bit disconnected from kind of the iPad sphere, if you will. But then the iPad Pro came out and with a pencil and that got my attention because As a developer, whenever I get new hardware, I'm always excited. (laughs) That just means that I can create more stuff with more capabilities and use these new tools for cool stuff. But I didn't get one, mostly because I was just so busy with lots of other stuff, like with work and things like that. So I never got around to, you know, getting one for prototyping or for building something new. But now, the last year, the iPhone X came out. And the iPhone X for me was a huge deal because... When you have a device where all of it is basically screen 
And I mean, there are some bezels, but it's pretty much all screen. That is extremely inspiring for me because when I look at this device, what I see is kind of like, this is just a blank canvas where I can draw anything I want on. And my app can kind of become the device or the device becomes my app. That is extremely motivating. So when Apple showed off the new iPad Pro, I saw that and I was like, it's like the iPhone X, but for the iPad, I need to have that. So I felt like this was a great time to get back into the iPad. And also like over the years, I've been building up so many ideas about what I wanted to build for this thing, but I've never had the time to do it. But now I had some extra time. So I thought, well, let me get an iPad. Let me see what I can use this big, beautiful screen for. Let's see if I can build some of these prototypes and what I can do with it. So when I got the iPad, most people, when they get an iPad, the first thing they do is they start playing around with it, right? (laughs) They start using some apps and playing some games and stuff like that. The first thing I did when I unboxed it and when I had gone through the onboarding was just to plug it into Xcode. <laughs> so that was the first <laughs> thing I did because I had so many ideas. I just wanted to build stuff for this thing. I want to use the iPad more and more. And I've actually been using the iPad pretty much all day for writing uh, an article and for doing some work. I am seeing that this is more and more a platform where I can get more work done. And I want to do that. But mostly I just want to create stuff for this thing. It's like it's such a cool device to build things for. And it's so fast. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite things about the second generation Pro is ProMotion. Has that been something that you've been delighted with and noticed yet? I think that uh, ProMotion is going to ruin me. (laughs) (laughs) When I got my PlayStation 4 Pro, uh, it runs almost all games, like except the most, most high-end ones, but it runs almost all games. If you play in 1080p, uh, it runs them at 60 frames per second. Yeah. Now I'm kind of ruined when it comes to 30 frames per second. <laughs> if I if I play a game with 30 FPS, I'm like, oh, this feels like it's lagging. Like it feels like my eyes are getting sore. <laughs> and I'm scared that the same thing will happen with promotion. That uh, after using this iPad for a while, I will feel like normal 60 frames per second will be like lagging yeah just scrolling twitter on an iphone is just painful after promotion <laughs> yeah especially when you compare led to lcd as well where things are a little bit more delayed in terms of of the rendering promotion is beautiful i i'm like whoa this is so smooth i never knew scrolling could be this smooth it's definitely delightful yeah i wonder if the mac pro will be the first mac that does it If Apple, or I should say when Apple moves to ARM on the Mac, like when they actually build their own GPUs and their own CPUs for the Mac, this could be a thing. Because rendering at 120 frames per second instead of 60 is like doubling the capacity, right? And then you Mm -hmm. also add stuff like 4K and Retina support. You know, you're just adding a ton, a ton of complexity for the GPU. For the Mac Pro, yeah, that could definitely work. But you also want all that CPU power to be useful for you when it comes to getting your work done, right? Right. So it's it's a bit of a trade-off, but Apple has really shown with their own chip design that they can do something like ProMotion and still keep everything super smooth and it doesn't seem like this iPad is breaking a sweat. You know, it's all rendering everything and it's just, you know, super fast and it's incredibly impressive. And I can't wait to get something like that on the Mac as well. The ARM transition you talk about is going to be especially just curious. We have the conversation of what's a computer? Yeah. Now it'll be what's a Mac, what's an iPad? Because if it's all on ARM, you could technically be running iOS on that Mac. I can't wait for the day when all these devices, they're kind of just form factors, you know? Like if you want a laptop, you get a laptop. If you want a tablet, you get a tablet. If you want a convertible, you know, something like some of the Microsoft 
Microsoft and Google products where you can detach the screen or you can attach it again. You can get one of those. You can get a phone. You can connect your phone to a display and it becomes a computer, you know? Yeah, totally. That day is extremely, extremely exciting because it feels like we're getting there quite quickly because like you say, like, what is the computer when everything is running the same chips? You know, if everything is running the A15 or whatever it will be <laughs> called when when the, that day comes, all the devices are running the same chip, then the only difference is the form factor, which is great because you can pick the one that you like the most. Yeah, because the, the conversation is kind of curious because I was a Mac person for many years and there's still a couple of Mac apps that I really love, like Final Cut Pro and a couple of niche apps that, that I occasionally go to the Mac for, but... More of the applications that I find useful to get my job done live on iOS now, and it will be really great once those are also on Mac, and I'll just be able to work wherever I want to. There's no reason, I mean, again, if we would design it today, let's say that, you know, we would turn back time and we would design tablets and laptops and desktop computers today, they would probably all be running the same OS, right? Yeah. There's no real reason for them to run different OSs. They're all just like different form factors, you would need to do some slight tweaks to, you know, how things are rendered. And, you know, Microsoft have been really pushing this uh, and Google now as well with their new products. And I think it's super cool that a lot of different companies are heading in this direction because I think it's definitely going to be beneficial for everyone to just be able to, like you say, pick the apps you want to use, share things with other people that use another platform. You know, it's all kind of the dream, right? Like Mm -hmm. the computing will just be ubiquitous and you could just, you know, use it wherever you want. And it's it's curious with Microsoft because they've been trying ARM on Windows, but their chips aren't Apple's chips, which I find curious that like all ARM isn't created equal in that sense. Yeah, I mean, ARM is just an instruction set. So it really comes down to the actual silicon and how you actually build the chips. And this for me is like probably like the most impressive thing that Apple has ever done, which is to build their own chips and to create this kind of R&D department that year after year just kind of doubles the performance, you know, sometimes triples the performance or even better. And they create this crazy, complicated chips internally for their own devices, and it's all like fully integrated. So it's extremely fast. Just look at the latest one, like the A12 and the A12X, and this is like built on a seven nanometer process, which is something that pretty much no other company in the industry is doing at scale. They are so far ahead when it comes to their chips. So yeah, I can't wait to see when they are actually able to leverage that advantage on the Mac uh, as well. I guess then we'll have like laptops with like 20 hours of battery life, <laughs> yes. and like 10x performance. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be super cool. Yeah, definitely. So if you had to commission Apple to make an app for iPad, what would it be? Would it be Xcode? Probably. It would probably be some kind of code editor. I think when people say that they want Xcode for the iPad, what we ideally would like is something that, at least initially, is like a complement to Xcode on the Mac. So kind of similar thinking to the game editor environment that we were talking about earlier, where you will do the majority of your actual like game development on the Mac, but then you could bring that with you and you can do edits, you can do game design and level design on the go. And I would love to have something like that, at least initially for the iPad, where I might do most of my kind of hardcore coding in front of the computer, because here I have my mouse and keyboard and I have like a big screen, but then being able to make these like really great edits, like really quickly, uh, be able to move things around, change the UI and things like that on the iPad. Uh, That would be amazing. At least initially, a kind of companion Xcode on the iPad that works together with the Mac version would be very, very useful. And I would love to see that. 
Yeah. So with like UI, I, I've played around with Xcode just a little bit. And I know there is the UI portion where you're dragging screen elements around. Yeah, interface builder. You're envisioning perhaps dragging it on the device you're actually coding it for, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of idea as with my game engine where, you know, let's say you have an app running and uh, you can touch the Apple Pencil, for example, and you can move buttons around, you can change the text, you can change the position, you can play around with different ideas for the UI because so much of our work as iOS developers is working together with a designer to actually like experiment and come up with new ideas. With a smaller screen, especially on the iPhone, there's a lot of challenges in terms of what kind of information you want to display and what kind of controls you want to make available, but also not make the UI too kind of cluttery with too many controls. There's a lot of experimentation involved and you have to iterate really quickly. And being able to do all of that on the device and on the iPad, for example, with a designer or the designer can even do it themselves, that could be really game-changing. That could be make, make our kind of turnaround much, much quicker. Yeah. Now, same question for the OS level. What do you want to see Apple add to iOS with 13? So I'm Swedish, uh, Mm -hmm. but I do most of my work in English, of course. Like I write all my code in English and and I speak to most of my friends in English. So I constantly switch back between a Swedish keyboard and a US keyboard. And doing this with a hardware keyboard, for example, is it's not very nice because by default, the OS assumes that you want to type in the language that your keyboard is, and then you can change that. But then you also change the autocomplete and you change also the dictionary, like the spelling correction. So if I want to use a Swedish keyboard layout, iOS also assumes that I'm writing in Swedish, which is not always true because my hardware keyboard is actually using the Swedish layout. So it's kind of like, I I don't know, maybe it's an edge case, but I think a lot of people, especially in Europe, are kind of bilingual and we're using like a different language when we're working and at home. So I think a lot of people have this this issue. And if the iPad is going to, you know, do more work for people, I think solving these kind of edge cases or these kind of issues where, you know, make the text input easier, both with the software keyboard and the hardware keyboard, that would be huge, I think. And I think that would be be great. And then, of course, the things that everyone else is saying, which is, can we please have, like, you know, access to to hard drives and thumb drives and stuff via USB-C. I personally can't remember the last time I hooked up a thumb drive or a hard drive to my computer. <laughs> I don't think I've actually ever done it on my new computer. <laughs> so I'm all in the cloud, you know, I'm all, all cloud-based. So I don't personally feel that need, but again, it's like, a, I think it's an important thing for the platform to just like enable more use cases. Right, yeah. I, I'm in the same case. I don't need that, but it would be nice just for the people that do. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, in general, like a a very important thing to think about when we're talking about these devices. You know, if we want to make them as general purpose as possible, they need to support many different workflows, not just the one that we prefer. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think this is sometimes lost when we're talking about stuff like ports, for example, when people are like, why would you ever need an SD card reader? Well, some people really do, right? I don't, but some people really do. And having that kind of versatility in our devices is, I think it's really important. Yeah. They were showcasing the Mac Mini uh, rendering video on stage the other week. And I'm just imagining a future Final Cut Pro where you have all your old iPhones just standing by to render Final Cut Pro video out of the iPad. That's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Building your own render farm with your own devices. Yeah, exactly. It's like 
Yeah, it's like, uh, where do devices go when it's time to be decommissioned? Well, they move upstate to the farm, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is uh, this is your render farm. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, and I mean, they're getting increasingly powerful. I mean, my iPhone X is faster than my computer. so And my iPad is probably like 10 times faster than my computer <laughs> at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly exciting. And I also love the fact that, you know, you, we were always thinking before that, you know, bigger computers were always much faster. Yeah. But now, again, thanks to Apple's huge advancements in their own chip making, the smallest devices are actually faster. So yeah, it's incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's amazing to see. I mean, if they can do this on an iPad, imagine sticking 100 A12Xs in a on a Mac and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and imagine building like a server farm or like a data center based on those. If they can design these chips in a way where you can just stack them and you can uh, daisy chain them together. You know, you could end up with also huge savings in space where these things are just tiny and they are, for the most part, uh, they don't require any active cooling. So that could also be a huge thing. We've just seen kind of the initial application of Apple's own chips. And I think there's so many more ways they can use them in servers and, you know, desktop computers. And, you know, we're already seeing things like, you know, the AirPods and tinier computers and these kind of things, the Apple Watch. Yep, totally. So uh, last question, Siri shortcuts. Have you dove into using that much? Do you have a favorite use of it yet? Just in a very limited capacity so far, to be honest. Uh, it's something that I've been following all the way since uh, Workflow and all the things that they were doing. And I think it's a super cool technology. And uh, I've been playing around with it and building some shortcuts. I have one for when I go to sleep. I have one for when I'm podcasting. And I have these basic shortcuts, but I haven't done anything like really advanced with them yet. And I've seen some people, you know, done some really cool things like uh, playing cards with uh, with Siri and stuff like that in in shortcuts and again it's like almost like a programming language we're getting there very quickly especially when you add things on top of it like the scriptable app when you add things like pythonista on top of it and they're all adding support for Siri shortcuts the it just becomes a extremely fully featured environment so I, one day now I'm going to sit down with my iPad and just see what I can do with it and see how far I can take it but I haven't done that just yet gotcha so for those that want to listen to you and other podcasts, you produce two of them. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I've got Swift by Sundell, which is my biweekly podcast about Swift development, where each week I have a new guest from the Swift developer community on. So you can find that at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast. And I'm also on the Stacktrace podcast with my friend Guy Rambo, uh, where we talk about Apple news and rumors and reverse engineering uh, from a developer's perspective. And you can find that at stacktracepodcast.fm. Very cool. And any other places people should check out? Best place to find me if you want to ask me any questions or talk to me, uh, it's on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell there. So I'm always happy to connect with people, uh, you know, people who love the iPad, love Mac and Apple's platforms or development and programming. It's always a lot of fun to talk to everyone. Great. Thanks, John. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of iPad Pros. You can find the show notes over at iPadPros.net. You can send your feedback to me at iPadProsPodcast.gmail.com. If you email a voice memo, I'd be happy to include your audio in a future episode. I'm on Twitter at iPadProsPodcast. And as mentioned at the top of the show, if you haven't had a chance to review the show on Apple Podcasts, I highly encourage you to do so. Every review helps send signals to promote the podcast more in search and helps other people discover the show. Thank you for your time and attention today. Talk to everyone again real soon.